Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Andreas Schleicher, who is Director for Education and Skills at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. He initiated and oversees the Program for International Student Assessment and has worked for over 20 years with ministers and education leaders around the world to improve quality and equity in education. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Andreas, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for hosting me. So you started studying mathematics and physics and ended up in educational policy, which is you know quite the journey. So why don't you start by just telling us about this background and your interest and how you came to working on the problems you're working on today? Well, you know, I had my first uh, job in medical research, actually working as a scientist, but uh, uh, then I had to do my civil service, which you had to do at this time in Germany. And uh, I worked in a school for disadvantaged children and that really got me interested in education. So I changed my career. And I'm really happy about it. So how has studying the hard sciences and, and being a research scientist for a certain amount of time influenced the way you approach measuring outcomes or designing policy objectives? You know, it's a good question. I, th I often think that um, we shouldn't consider education less of an art, but we should start to consider it more of a science. You know, I, I find that perspective often missing. We have a lot of really good ideas tried out in classrooms by people, but we are not, you know, very good at scaling and spreading innovation because we do not, you know, keep track of the nature of it. And uh, the more I think scientific thinking we can bring into education and its processes, the more successful we will see innovation, I, I believe. And uh, I, I found it actually a a missing perspective that has, you know, led me to run global educational comparisons uh, in education, we tend to look upwards in the system, you know, the teacher to the school principal, the school principal to the school district. We too rarely look outwards, you know, the teacher to the next teacher, the school to the next school. And I think creating a kind of stronger fabric in education is something that really relies on good science. So would you, would you say that there's plenty of innovation happening in the education space? It's mostly a matter of tracking the outcomes and scaling those out when we find something that works. Yeah, absolutely. You have a, a lot of, particularly in this pandemic, uh, we have seen unprecedented both technical and technological and social innovation in education. Uh, but whether this will remain and be of enduring relevance uh, will depend on whether we understand its nature, whether we can sort of make it systematic, whether we can scale it. And I am not sure we are very well prepared for this in education. Teachers don't have a culture of being creative designers of innovative learning environments. They're often, you know, very much, you know, occupied with transmitting uh, a knowledge rather than about, you know, questioning it and building new kind of science around what they do. I wish, you know, every teacher would be in part also a researcher, in part a designer, in part a coach, a mentor, a facilitator. I think we would have very different education systems then. 
What has innovation been like um, in the United States or around the world? And I'm obviously more familiar with the example here in America, but the impression I get is that not that much has changed in 50 years or a century. I could be totally wrong about that. Has there been a lot of innovation in this space? Well, you know, I, certainly the gap between what our societies and economies demand from people and what goods provide has not become smaller but wider. Uh, clearly, if uh, the kind of things that are easy to teach, easy to test, they are also easy to digitize, to right. automate. Uh, in a way, we have become very good at educating, you know, second-class robots, people who are good at repeating what we tell them, which used to be very, very useful uh, centuries ago. But uh, today, I think we need to think much harder what makes us human, how we, you know, complement, not substitute the artificial intelligence in our computers. And I think that requires a very, very different scale of innovation. You know, uh, innovation is important to make education more efficient and effective. Clearly, you know, the United States is a case in point. You spend a lot of money and the outcomes are just so-so. Yep. But that is even the minor concern. The bigger concern I have is, is that education is losing its relevance and purpose. You know, young people simply, you know, fading out because they can no longer relate what they learn to their own future. And that is, you know, we do not innovate what students learn and we do not innovate how students learn. Just on the what question, you know, uh, when I started with the PISA comparisons in mathematics, I asked myself, you know, why 10th graders learn so much trigonometry, you know, and then you ask the mathematicians, uh, is that the core, the foundation of mathematics? And the mathematicians told me, no, it's just, you know, one specific application. You don't need to learn this to understand math. I asked the engineers, you know, is trigonometry something you really need in tomorrow's engineers? And they say, well, you know, it's all digitized today. You don't need those skills. Why do we teach it? Because three, four hundred years ago, we needed those kinds of skills to design, you know, measure the size of our fields or design our houses. But we have not got rid of it and we have not created the room for the kind of big questions of our times. And I, I think that should be a big concern. You bring up a, you bring up a great point because I've been saying for a long time that we, we dedicate um, most of our time teaching just in case information, uh, just in case you might need this sometime in the future. Uh, you need to learn this entire book of, of world history or mathematics or sciences. And invariably, the amount that we actually put to use is somewhere uh, close to the single digits, maybe 1% or 2% of all that information. Um, and it's, it's always struck me as the much better way to go is to teach just-in-time information. Just at the time that you need it, if we can actually scale up some sort of learning process at that moment when you need it, rather than... Um, I mean, clutter all your brain cells with all this vast information that never gets used. Um, I mean, there's pluses and minuses to doing that, though. Well, I, I agree with this. You know, our school systems have become a mile wide and just an inch deep. We teach a lot of stuff at very superficial levels of depth. But to do what you're looking for, enable people to just-in-time learning, we have to focus on better learning strategies. We have to focus on building the motivation, the resilience for people to to, to learn, uh, rather than teaching you, you know, lots of facts and figures and, and uh, biology and chemistry, you know, 
teach you how to think like a scientist? Now, can you design an experiment? Can you distinguish questions that are scientifically investigable from those that are not? Then you can master the scientific knowledge of your times. Now, can you think like an historian? You know, not teaching people about names and places, but teaching them, you know, how the narrative of a society has emerged, how it developed, how it advanced, and sometimes how it unraveled. If you can think like an historian, you know, you will learn on your own when you need it, how you need it. But basically giving students a better, a deeper understanding of the nature of the discipline, the architecture of the discipline will enable them to master the content uh, knowledge. Now, the, the, the challenge, the biggest challenge we face is to teach fewer things at much greater depths now. So I, I kind of want to stick with this theme for a little while. And your title is the Director of Education and Skills. And in your work, you emphasize that the schools of tomorrow need to teach students how to think for themselves, also how to work in groups, how to develop a strong sense of right and wrong. And I, I suspect that most people would have a less expansive view of education. So just walk me through how you approach what education should be and, and possibly how we move closer to that ideal. Well, you know, you can imagine the future of technology, the capabilities of, of digital technologies. We study that very carefully at the OECD. You know, what are computers up to today? What will they be capable uh, tomorrow? And uh, then we need to think, you know, how we can complement that with human capabilities. Uh, uh, you will need great engineers, uh, but, you know, technology will amplify the capabilities so it becomes about becoming an ethical engineer, now, being able to distinguish, you know, good and bad, right and wrong in 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 your in your capabilities. So I think we we need to think harder how we complement uh, the technological capabilities and the uh, and the human capabilities. That's what we basically do when we talk about uh, curriculum design, not to. Uh, substitute technology, but to complement it. That's one angle to this. The other angle, I, I, I think, is the connectedness in our world. You know, you simply have to much more. In the past, you know, you could live in a little bubble and be quite successful. Today, you have to, you know, understand how people think differently, how people live in different cultures and different traditions. And you have to look across the boundaries of subject matter disciplines. You have to uh, and, and those capabilities, I think, are another very, very important dimension and uh, building that kind of bridging uh, social capital. You know, we are all uh, comfortable with living with our family and people who are our friends and who we have grown up with. And uh, we often struggle uh, to live with people who think differently from us, who uh, work differently, who look differently. But again, I think that is one of the challenges of our times uh, to build more collaborative learning experiences in, in, in schools and, and uh, <clears throat> education. So I think uh, you can, we, we cannot imagine the future, of course, but we can look at the drivers of that future. And we have, we can start to think in terms of multiple and maybe alternative futures, and then, you know, learn to navigate among them. And uh, I think that's really the challenge that faces uh, education systems today. You cannot, you know, imagine a specific set of content that you need to teach, but you can ask yourself, what are the drivers of the changes that we're going to see in tomorrow's world? And how can we make people resilient and capable to, to thrive on that? <clears throat> I think the pandemic has been a perfect test, but the future will always surprise us. 
Yeah, a few few years ago, um, I hosted an interactive session. Uh, we brought in about thirty um, kind of thought leaders in the education space, and we were we did a session on uh, the future of education. Um, with the goal of trying to come up with some sort of a uh, an end goal, a competition that we could sponsor uh, that would move education forward. And uh, throughout the day, it was a very spirited debate that uh, deteriorated into uh, name-calling and uh, yelling at each other. And, and suddenly I, I came to the conclusion that, um, that nobody's on the same page. Uh, in the education world, and it di means different things to different people, and and so uh, as a result, we weren't able to come up with anything meaningful out of that session. Um, is is that what you run into a lot? Is that we have a lot of um, really deep seated, ingrained thoughts about how education should be happening, and nobody wants to change. Yeah, you know, but I think uh, we come back to this point that we need a, a better and deeper scientific underpinning for our ways of thinking. You know, I grew up as a physicist. I can talk to anyone in the world about almost any problem in physics. At least I could in the past when I was right. still up to right. speed with the field. Uh, in education, we do not have that shared narrative, that common understanding, that scientific underpinning. I really believe that's where we need to start. If we do not have a common language, uh, we will not build a common understanding. We will use similar words for different things, similar concepts for different phenomena. And I think um, that's where, where education needs to work on. And I think we have the tools today. That's the great thing. If you look actually at the research tools that we have at our disposal, they are just amazing. Uh, if you look at the data sources that we have available, you know, in the past, when you wanted to know something about what students learn, you had to give them, you know, a large test. You had to analyze the results. Today, you know, learning analytics gives you real-time access how different students learn different. And it's just amazing. We have the tools, but we need to invest in the science. You know, if 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 you could treat this as you know folk wisdom that is traded by you know tradition and personal experience, uh, you will not see any any changes. And part of this is actually, you know at the, the fall of public policy itself, uh, you know, we have created a very industrial work organization in education. You know, we have this illusion that there's someone in, you know, the Department of Education or the district who knows what millions of students should be learning. And then, you know, that trickles through the school system in terms of books and, and instructional material. And we have disempowered educators, teachers at the front line to become, you know, owners of their professional practice. If you are working, you know, when I started in my career in medical research, you know, uh, you are used to doing clinical trials. You're used to experiment. You are held accountable if things go wrong. Actually, people will sue you if you make a big mistake. Uh, in education, you know, we do not have any of that culture. And I think the scientific underpinning, building a common conversation is a starting point. You know, that's why I devote, you know, my career to at the OECD. That's why I created instruments like PISA to get people, you know, share experiences in a more systematic way. What, what is driving the state of 
the scientific investigation of education, because it's not as though people haven't been collecting data for a long time. And it's not as though there hasn't been massive amounts of public sector and private sector spending on this. So people have been looking at it for a long time. There's a vast literature on education and cognition and pedagogy and all that. So why is it as bad as, as it actually is? Like, why is this conversation not there? Yeah, you know, it's just an interesting point that you make. I think the issue is really that we have uh, obviously a lot of research, uh, but it's entirely disconnected from the uh, daily life of teachers and students. <laughs> you know, that's where the break comes. As a scientist, you are engaged in your own your profession. You're not having a ministry of science that tells you what to do and what to think. If you are a medical doctor, you're not looking to the Department of Health to tell you, you know, what to think and what to do. You are building that science and you work with your colleagues and you actually learn from and with your mistakes because you share them. Uh, you publish your, the results of your work and you'll be criticized by your profession and that will help you improve your practice. In education, if you're criticized, you will defend or redouble your defense in what you had. I, I think that is the, the, the kind of culture that is so different. Yes, there is a lot of research. There is a lot of resources, but I don't think it has the connection with the people who implement it in the pra uh, practice. Now we have in education, you know, we have divorced learning from assessment. Now that's the other part of it. You know, we, uh, we teach students and then somebody else comes, walks into your school and tests them, but the two are disconnected. We have divorced research and learning science. Now we have, you know, disconnected the people who are running our education systems from the, the ideas that are being generated in the ivory towers of universities. And that's where the problem comes from. It's not the absence of research, it's that we do not have an ecosystem that, you know, advances that there. And in part, it's again, you know, we have this idea, we can train teachers, you know, we send them to four years to university, we're going to tell them all the tips and tricks, and then, you know, we let them on their own in the classroom rather than saying, you know, we are actually expecting that school becomes a place where everybody learns, you know, students learn, teachers learn, you know, the system learns from its own, you know, uh, failures and successes. That's, I think, the culture that uh, you need to see long term sustained success now. And actually, you know, I'm not talking uh, theory here. If you look to the most rapidly improving education systems, you know, look to Singapore or China in Asia, look to Finland and, or Estonia in, in Northern Europe. Uh, that's what you see there. You have basically an army of people in the education systems who become the innovators. No? Innovation in Sil Silicon Valley didn't happen because there was someone at the top of the system who told people what to do. Innovation became because there was an enabling environment and, and really, really good information flows. And I think, you know, that's what you see in the world's most advanced education systems. So, so I'd like to test out an idea on you. Um, we've been speculating that um, there, there, there's one course that is taught in virtually every college around the world, which is uh, economics. You know, Econ 101 um, is uh, introductory to economics, and that's taught in virtually every college. And if you take the information in Econ 101 and you hand it off to a movie producer, uh, the movie producer would look at it, at that information through a different lens. And he would say, oh, well, we can dramatize this. We can make it much more interesting. We can compress down the amount of time it takes to convey that information. And they would produce something that's that I would think would be rather interesting. 
Now, if you take that same information and you hand it off to a game developer, that game developer would look at it through an entirely different lens. And he would say, oh, I think we can gamify this and we can make it much more fun and much more uh, palatable to a younger generation. And again, we can compress down the time it takes to convey this information. And the same, same would go with if you handed it off to somebody in the virtual worlds, because the virtual world people think differently than everybody else. So, um, so if you held a competition um, for uh, Econ 101 every year and you had handed out a, a couple million dollar prize each year for the uh, biggest innovation in Econ 101, and you did that for 10 years in a row, my thinking is is that after the 10th year, it would be so staggeringly different, we can't even imagine what that would look like from today's perspective. And that ends up being a process to getting to an unknown outcome. Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to get your feedback on using something like that to push the envelope of education. Absolutely. You know, and I think you can actually do that without your $2 million price money. You know, <laughs> what, pe what rewards people generally is the intellectual kind of reward that comes from, you know, generating new ideas. And uh, what you suggest is actually existing in some education systems. If you go to Shanghai in China, for example, there is a digital platform where teachers uh, share their lesson plans, their projects, their ideas, and it's all crowdsourced and it's all crowd curated. So the more other teachers like your economics course and, you know, improve it and criticize it and develop it further, the more you rise in recognition in the system. And at the end of the school year, your school principal will not just ask you, how well did you teach your own students in economics, but what contribution did you make to the education systems? How are you regarded by your colleagues in the field? And it is that intellectual kind of recognition that drives people. I think it's not the, the money. I think in education, we often use financial incentives in a very simplistic way. We do not, we, we, we try to make education financially attractive, but not intellectually attractive. That's really, I think, where you need to work on. But I think the idea that you frame is exactly the right approach. Make the people who deliver education, the designer of their practice, they get that feedback. They understand how students, what students learn and how they don't learn, and they can actually refine and refine their processes. So absolutely, I think that is the future of, of learning. And it, again, it exists in some uh, education and uh, some school systems today. I don't think we should discount the uh, the role that financial incentives can play, though. So, so one of the best uh, English teachers in Korea is this guy that makes like YouTube videos and he makes uh courses you can take at home. And he works 60 hours a week and makes about a million dollars a year. And, and I, I submit that a million dollars a year for you know a work week like that is a pretty strong incentive to, to get the lesson plans right. Yeah, you know, it can work. Uh, but again, you know, I've studied that actually over many years. So how do you get, for example, your brightest teachers into difficult schools? Because that's where they can make so much of a difference. People have tried that with money and you have to pay huge salary differentials to motivate a great teacher to teach in a really rough and yeah. tough school. Uh, that's not very easy. If you approach it the other way around, you know, you create an environment where you basically say, you know, you take on these really difficult schools and you'll be in a career elevator. You know, you are going to get the, the best, you know, colleagues and principals to help you. We are going to look after your family. We are going to support you. Suddenly, you create an environment where people actually feel this is the most privileged place to work on. Once again, you know, if you are a surgeon, 
you don't want to operate an appendix every day. You want to do the most difficult, the toughest, the most demanding operations. Why? Not because you get better paid, but because that is, you know, what, you know, your ethos, your kind of uh, idea of the profession, the recognition is coming from. And I think we need to create more of that in education. Uh, we talked about innovation. We, we are not very good in recognizing the innovators. Actually, we often penalize people for being innovative. I'm not, I'm not saying this, I'm not making this up. When we, when we surveyed American teachers, 75% of American teachers said to us, if I'm more innovative in my teaching, I'm rather going to be penalized than rewarded or recognized for this. Mm. And I think that is the culture that really, uh, you know, drives out what you are just suggesting, right. that you actually, you know, try and test new ideas and refine them in the light of, of real experience. Now, so, yeah, money can help you with this. But again, you know, I think uh, money is not sufficient to get people to change their, their habits. <clears throat> so let, let's get a little into your research. So your book, World Class, How to Build a 21st Century School System, looks at decades worth of, or it summarizes rather, decades worth of research in which you've done uh, studies and surveys, and you've looked in a great deal of depth at, at different school systems. So wh why don't you just take us through what that research process has been like and what the main takeaways are. Like, like where are the most innovative school systems in the world? How do they distinguish themselves from other approaches? Yeah, you know, first of all, the time scale, it is really necessary. Uh, if you, you know, improve early childhood education today, it's going to take 20 years until you can see that impact. So I had to really look at this over very long periods of time to really study, you know, which education systems had really durable, sustainable, positive long-term outcomes. Uh, I started with a very disparate set of countries. Uh, and uh, what the hardest part was actually to break through, you know, the, the, the kind of cultural barriers that we often make up, you know, to find the the shared ideas where people use different language. And uh, the longer, you know, I worked on this, the more I found that actually what drives educational success is remarkably similar across countries and cultures. It comes down to a few things. Sometimes, you know, some are hard to sort of um, uh, crystallize, you know, the value that a society places on education. You know, uh, Japanese parents are going to invest their last effort, their last resources in the education of their children, which is, you know, the future of the country. In our Western societies, we have already spent the money of our children for our own consumption. Right. So that's, you know, the, the price society places on the future, the kind of choices it makes between the present and the future. The second part is the really deep belief that everybody can succeed, that every, every student can learn. Uh, what we do in the Western world often is we uh, uh, make it far too easy for young people who are not uh, learning in our way of teaching them. Uh, rather than thinking, you know, I have to change my approach to teaching, rather than leveling down the horizon, I need to level up my approaches to teaching. Again, that's the hallmark of high-performing education systems. What, you know, struck me most why I cared about Finland in this report was not their high overall performance on international rankings, but the fact that they had only 5% of the performance variation lying between schools. Now, the closest school was always the best school, and that really was amazing to me. How do they make success systemic throughout the system? And it's because of that. Now, this belief everybody can succeed, we got to look at the conditions that actually make everybody successful. The third area, in very different means, but always the same concept, is how do you align resources with needs? Now, how do you 
attract the most talented teacher to the most challenging classroom. Uh, United States is a case in point. You know, you spend more money on education than virtually every you know industrialized education system. But you know, the money often doesn't arrive where it's most needed. First of all, half of your resources never make it into the classroom, so uh, they end up somewhere you know on the way. Uh, and the half that ends up in the classroom uh, usually ends up in you know children where you do not make that much of a difference. You know, if you come from a wealthy background, you'll have many open avenues to, to success and you know, you'll always be successful even if you don't do so well in school if you come from a really disadvantaged backgrounds your teacher your school is the only card you can play so actually aligning resources with needs is what you can see you look at britain the pupil premium basically giving schools uh, money for actually addressing particularly difficult uh, students uh, the Chinese approach to align career paths with challenges. No? You want to advance in your career, the only way is to actually get on uh, with a kind of tougher situation. Um, so I think this alignment of resources with needs, the investments in teachers, you know, in a way, uh, the way in which do we, you know, build a kind of industrial system where teachers are just, you know, exchangeable widgets on an assembly line, just supposed to do what they have been told, or do we invest in a high quality profession? And you have to make choices. You know, uh, if you want a smaller class, uh, you pay a very high price for that in terms of, you know, having uh, less money there for paying teachers well and for giving them, you know, better working conditions. And uh, again, I think once you study this, you'll find that actually it is not rocket science. You know, that is for me was a big uh, revelation. That's really why I, why I wrote this book, really to, to show is we are not talking at an insoluble problem. We're talking about something that is actually doable and has been done quite successfully. You can see countries, you know, a country like Vietnam, you know, even I, in our international comparisons, I didn't have on my radar screen until, you know, six, seven years ago. And suddenly... You know, they turn out as one of the world's, you know, most rapidly improving education systems because they follow, uh, you know, the same kind of principles. <clears throat> so to me, it seems like it is a really huge problem. Maybe I'm just looking at, at it from the perspective of an American. But you know, what are the steps that we take to begin to cut this Gordian knot? I mean, on the one hand, we need to attract, you know, more talented people. We need to remunerate them somehow, n not necessarily with actual dollars, but with intellectual satisfaction. We need to encourage innovation. But there's there's really a lot of gridlock in the American system. I mean, between the teachers unions and public policy and just a 100 years of doing things a certain way. I, I have no idea how you would even begin to address that problem. So I'm sure you do. Uh, what, what What's the best way to move forward? Well, you know, I think uh, one very important first step is, and uh, that was tried, you know, a few years ago, the uh, common core to get a shared understanding of what education should be about. If you do not have a shared notion of what really good education looks like, it's going to take you a long time or you will never get there. And I, I actually was very impressed by that effort in the United States where people, you know, work together to uh, think through that question. And uh, I, I think a curriculum, a uh, kind of good instructional system is a starting point for a good education system. You cannot get a good teacher if you cannot define what a good teacher is, really. And I think um, that's not a difficult thing to do. Actually, uh, many countries have uh, been able uh, to build agreement, even in complex situations, you know, 
my country, Germany, is also, you know, very complex in governance, has states like the United States, uh, decisions are made in all sorts of levels. Uh, but they got their act together based on poor PISA results to actually change that. And I think um, that's, a, that's a very important starting point to have that conversation of what is it that we expect from education. And uh, w once you have that, a lot of other things fall in place. The second part is, you know, uh, we have seen a trend towards uh, commodifying education. You know, students became consumers and teachers are considered service providers and parents, clients. And that has certain advantages, but it also has the big disadvantage that nobody feels responsible. Everybody does their little part. I think, you know, we need to, again, create more of that, you know, this is a whole of society project. And uh, once you actually get parents better information into their hands, you know, some things are simple. You know, if parents get a kind of WhatsApp message or a Facebook message every, you know, day from what their children are doing in school, actually, they start to relate very differently to what their children do. And our research has shown, you know, where parents simply ask the question, you know, how was school? That's not about, you know, spending three hours of homework with your child. That's simply showing your child what you do is important to me. That had a bigger, better impact on, you know, learning outcomes than uh, parental income. So, and again, it's not rocket science. It's simply, you know, getting people to think about problems together. And I think you can change those kinds of support structures. The last thing which I would touch is the things that you spend most of the energy on in the United States is the structures of the system. For me, they are the consequence, not the cause of the problem. You know, uh, the kind of uh, all the accountability system, this is all about managing mistrust. That's a sort of what the outgrowth, the kind of bureaucracy, the kind of complicated wage agreements. I think once you have a system with greater ownership, you know, those things become a lot less less relevant. You know, you cited the unions, and I agree with you. They are a big headache in many education systems. But, you know, often, you know, you could say that education systems get kind of the union that deserve. they deserve. In a sense, you know, that if you have a very industrial work organization, you're going to get a union that fights on industrial issues because that's how they can, you know, define their identity. If you have a professional work organization and education, your union is going to change. I give you one example of this, which I followed very early in my career. In Sweden, you know, they introduced individualized pay in the early 90s. And that, of course, you know, was a kind of red flag for the unions. They didn't want to have anything to do with this. But they introduced it. And actually, you know, three, four years later, suddenly uh, teachers understood hey, the system's actually working well for me. You know, I go to, to a tougher school, I uh, get a better salary. I teach a subject that is really, you know, in more in demand, I'll get a better salary. And once the teachers had changed their mind, the unions changed their mind. Suddenly they saw, actually, you know, it's working for us. So I think, you know, if you change your system, you'll change the dynamic between government and unions. And that's, I think, the better way than to fight that battle and never win it. <laughs> What what if we just expanded the scope of of private schools? And I don't just mean schools that accept tuition for their students, but I mean schools that depart radically from the existing way of doing things. And one one thing I'm not really clear on is attention in several of the comments you've made. And so you've said that you want to do 
to increase and encourage innovation, but that also it's very important for everyone to kind of agree on what constitutes a good teacher and a good education. And I'm not really sure how to square those two things because it seems like if we all agree that education is X, but I'm an innovative teacher and I see that that's missing something important and I depart from that, that would be encouraging innovation, but also going against the need to have a set standard way of measuring these things and approaching that problem. So I'm not sure how those two things interact. Well, you know, in the United States, you do that so well in the field of uh, science and research. You know, you have an agreed, uh, you know, set of, you know, uh, knowledge in the field of science, but you as a researcher are in in encouraged, incentivized to challenge this, to add to this, to put it into question. And uh, once you succeed, you're actually rewarded by your community for that. And then you contribute it. And then your knowledge will become part of the system. And that's what you're recognized for. That's really what I'm talking about. And private schools can be a big part of that solution. In fact, you know, there are entire systems built around it. <coughs> If you go to the Netherlands, if you go to Hong Kong, every school is a private school. It's run by, you know, some private entity has its own philosophy, its own. But, and this is the important point, they're all connected within a public education system. So they're not, you know, little silos standing everywhere, but, you know, they share their knowledge. They compete for students. Uh, the teachers move across the system because they have, you know, shared kind of standards so that if you as a teacher want to work in a different school, it's actually very easy. You can take your retirement fund and all of this with you. So you can see actually the private initiative is there, but at the same time, they create a system around it. The more private initiative you have in the system, the stronger your regulatory environment needs to be. And I think one of the, uh, I think, issues I have seen in the United States is that actually, you know, uh, privatization and education has seen as being as we also need to get rid of regulation. So we just, you know, let everybody let a thousand flowers bloom without building a system for knowledge mobilization and, and sharing. And I think you can look how, you know, the uh, voucher schools or the, you know, charter schools in Hong Kong, Netherlands, Belgium produce amazing results. You know, as a parent, you can choose, you know, I use this kind of philosophy. I go to Montessori school, I go to Waldorf school. And then at the end of the day, there is again a shared exam. So you can actually see what results you're getting for what approach. I think that's a system that offers a lot of flexibility. But what is so interesting, when you survey schools, no, they belong to you know, private entities. Uh, when you survey them, they still consider themselves as part of the public school system. That's their philosophy. You know, We are part of a school system, but we are different from anybody else and we compete on our own ideas. So I was I was recently, um, well, a few months back, I was asked by a group in Korea to, uh, to create a video series on the future of education. And uh, I decided to approach this uh, with the overall theme of understanding the world they will inherit. And so by, by thinking about what the world's gonna be like, um, 20, 30, 40 years in the future, then we can uh, kind of understand what the young people today, these young people are going to be our future leaders, they're going to be our future politicians, our doctors, our lawyers, uh, our teachers, and our uh, and they're the ones that are going to, uh, to need to learn all these new skills to, uh, to work in that world. And so um, we've been looking looking at this from a number of different vantage points and uh and i was wanting to 
if you could comment on the changing nature of skills moving moving into the future, because a lot of the skills that we had in the past are are far less relevant than they'll be twenty years from now. Yeah, yeah, you know, I like your approach. I, I really think if we start to imagine uh, the future, or even multiple futures, the drivers of those futures, I think we will get a much better understanding of what we need to learn today to be ready for that future and not our past. And um, uh, I think, yeah, we can anticipate how certain types of skills become less relevant. That's what we are seeing. Routine cognitive skills are losing very rapidly in value. Uh, we are seeing a rise in you know, creative skills, the capacity to imagine, your capacity to manage and resolve tensions and dilemmas, your capacity to mobilize cognitive, social, emotional resources. I think those are rising in, uh, in importance and we can track that. And, um, uh, but I also think you know, that you know, sets the direction. What you also, I think, need to build is uh, great resilience among learners uh, tomorrow. Basically, that they need to anticipate that it's not just about learning, but it's also about your willingness and capacity to unlearn and to relearn when the context changes. Now, I think that's something to be ready for the unpredictable. To and we do often the opposite in education. You know, we make people believe in our own ideas, or we teach them, you know, the established wisdom of our times. We don't teach them to question the wisdom of our times and to build that mindset that uh, we, we, we constantly need to be willing to uh, put into question what we have learned and uh, be ready for new paradigms of thinking and walking. And I think if you have both, you have a sort of imagination of the future and a kind of direction of travel, and then you build that kind of cognitive, social, and emotional resilience, I think you'll set a very, very good foundation for for people's success. Now. What would a curriculum that focuses on that look like? Because it wouldn't be hard to just ask a couple of questions and get some essays and grade them and call it a day. But if you really want to build soft skills like that, creativity or the ability to resolve tensions, that's that's a much bigger lift. And, and there's all these issues around evaluating whether or not you've done a good job because it's often kind of nebulous. Like what, what, what does it mean to effectively do this? I mean, sometimes it's not possible to resolve the tensions. Um, so, so how do you build those skills, assess them over time and track students through the curriculum and verify that you're accomplishing the goal you've set for yourself? Especially skills like resilience and resourcefulness and flexibility and things like that. Yeah. Th- th- it's hard to define. It's hard to track. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm not so sure. You know, I think it's if if you put yourself into the space of a traditional school where students sit behind individual desks and do individual work, yeah, then it becomes an uphill struggle. But if you sort of are more open to the learning environments you're willing to consider, I think it's not impossible. You know, uh, in my country, in Germany or Switzerland, vocational education is actually often the most popular route for young people. They Despite the fact, you know, uh, we pay people to go to university. There's no fee and to get even a grant from the government to go there. And still, the majority of young people choose to learn with real people on a real workplace because of this. You know, they like this authentic environment and it gives you a great career. So I think, you know, you just have to be imaginative about learning environments, giving people uh, more opportunities to learn with re- real people and collaborative uh, work environments. You need to give people, uh, if you want people to be 
creative, you know, you need to give them more opportunities to take risks, to make mistakes, to learn from and with mistakes. Of course, it's harder to design learning environment for this, but uh, environments for this. But I don't think it's impossible. Actually, I think there are many teachers doing a very good job for this. So I think the learning part is actually easier. The assessment part, as you say, it is the hard part. You know, I think uh, what often happens is that we define the gateways so narrow that many of the things we're talking about get lost at that point of assessment. Uh, but, you know, think a few years ahead, uh, looking at technology. You know, I think, uh, we'll, are we going to see traditional school tests with bubble sheets in five years? I don't think so. You know, I think we will have technology that will actually track in real time, you know, how you learn, where you learn, when you learn, uh, what you learn, and actually give you real-time feedback. I think, you know, this idea that you need to st define a kind of narrow goalpost and see whether everybody gets there, I don't think that's going to be uh, so much longer relevant. I think actually probably this is an area where technology can really give us entirely new because it's important. If we get the assessment part wrong, we will not incentivize the kind of learning and teaching. And uh, I also think, you know, a more authentic learning environment deals with this huge issue of motivation. Um, you know, if you give young people a really challenging problem and you give them the resources and the support to actually address this, they'll spend, you know, hours and hours, well beyond school hours to solve that thing with huge enthusiasm and everything. Uh, so I think actually, you know, motivation is often a reflection of the learning environments. And I think we can, uh, and particularly for disadvantaged students, if you come from a wealthy background, again, you know, your parents will have successfully told you, well, you have to listen to all of this nonsense, you have to do your test well, then you have a great life. If you come from a disadvantaged background, you don't see that. And therefore, you give up much, much more easily. But by creating a different set of learning environments, I think you can frame that very differently. And I think there are very many, many very good examples today where that, that is happening. But on the assessment side, I, I agree with you. That is the harder part of the problem. And I think one where the current you know, frameworks are not helping us, they hinder us. I think we need to look more to technology-based assessment systems to, that integrate learning and assessment. <clears throat> so you and I met on a Doing Good, Doing Well panel that was that was focused on the future of education in the post COVID world. But I was, I was struck by how often your answers engaged with this question of, about technology. So how do you feel about the possibility of remote learning platforms like Khan Academy or Coursera Udacity, and especially advancing them so that they can handle more of these creative questions and creative assessments? Yeah, you know, first of all, I think it's unfortunate if we associate uh, digital learning with remote learning, because I do believe that learning is not a transactional phenomenon, but a social and a relational phenomenon. I think that's very, very important. If you do not, you know, uh, and, and I think that is where the strength of technology lies. Now, uh, otherwise, you just need television. Um, so I, I really think we should not, you know, say digital learning is about remote learning. I would also say, you know, Khan Academy... It's for me, you know, technology conserving traditional teaching, not technology transforming the way of learning. Now, so I, I really think that's where I see the future. I can see, for example, AI-based system 
understanding, you know, how people learn differently. You know, why you work on a problem in mathematics, a computer will be able to see, you know, how you learn, where you struggle, where you succeed, where you get bored, where you get really interested, and then adapt learning environments. Because we never learn in linear ways. We always learn with this kind of moment where we understand something. And I think technology supported by teachers can really uh, uh, get you there. Again, we spoke about you know the assessment part. Learning analytics will be hugely important. Getting better signals to educators, to students themselves, you know, how different students learn differently and then engage with that diversity, with more differentiated practice. I think, you know, sensors in a classroom, learning analytics, I think will be a huge, huge part of that picture of the future. And uh, the last element <coughs> is, um, uh, you know, blockchain technology. You know, the the credentialing part is is really where many of the problems currently come from. And uh, in, in a way, you know, all the colleges, uh, you have created such a monopolistic sector that, you know, can decide, you know, what is good and what is not good. And that often, you know, extracts huge monopoly rents from prospective students. Now, I think there, you know, the future is with very granular kind of ways of credentialing learning throughout our lives. You know, again, I think uh, this idea that you get a college degree and then are on your own is a thing of the past. The future is really about this kind of uh, more granular recognition of what people can can actually do. You put those three things together and I think we will have a very different culture of learning, a learning which, you know, gives people more ownership over what they learn, how they learn, when they learn, where they learn and learning where people distribute learning very differently over their life cycle. Now, not this idea, I have to rush through all of this and then get out rather than saying, well, you know, I will integrate, you know, learning or working and not learn for the job, but see my job as the opportunity for learning. So I, I think really there, there is a huge potential. Uh, and again, I think the pandemic has done one thing that is really transformational. It has changed the social acceptance of technology in education. You know, before mm -hmm. the pandemic, it was always seen as something that you, 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 you sprinkle on top and then, you know, it was more a nuisance. Nobody was really prepared for it. Now, basically, people see, well, you know, learning is not a place. Learning is an activity now. Yeah, well stated. That's very well stated. So in the, the last minutes here, uh, I, I wanted to speculate a little bit about what the future of this might look like. So uh, this is a futurist podcast that we have people on to talk about quantum computing or nanotechnology or AI or any of these other things. So we, we've sort of brushed up against this. How do you think that the emergence of advanced artificial intelligence, the kind of thing that can manage a whole class and, and rearrange the curriculum on the fly to account for individual lapses in attention or motivation or individual strengths and weaknesses will transform the classroom. Well, it will, you know, actually, I, I don't think it will actually replace uh, teachers and teaching. I think it will transform teachers and teaching, you know, you as a teacher, become much more of a designer of the process. You get, uh, you have to less worry about knowledge transmission. You have less worry about, you know, classroom management. You can focus really your energy to understand, you know, who are my students, you know, who are they? Who do they want to become? How I can support them in that journey? How I can, you know, use the right technologies to help them on their way. 
I think uh, so. Learning, I think, will remain a social ex uh, experience. Uh, but you know, I can see artificial intelligence, big data, learning analytics, and blockchain together fundamentally transforming that experience. And uh, you know, in in different ways. You know, maybe one day technology will overwrite all our educational institutions. It's quite possible. It's a scenario. You know, we just you know learn on our own. The devices will be everywhere. There will be not a moment in your life that is not about learning. Uh, it could be that technology will reinforce our institutions, that schools will become more a hub of, you know, communities, where actually communities pool their resources to actually, uh, you know, develop the, the talent uh, they need. It's very hard to predict, but I think it will certainly transform the process of learning and uh, make teaching a much more kind of rewarding profession. And uh, we should not see technology and, and people at opposing ends of the spectrum. They really, I think, uh, uh, will only make sense together. That's also a lesson from the pandemic. You know, just remote learning, distance learning has uh, not really done much to, you know, help people. No? So how would you, how would you describe um, the student experience 20 years from now? Uh, are they still going to go to a, a school? Are they still going to go to a classroom? Um, will will they have devices they attach to their ear? Uh, will we force them to put holes in their heads so we can pour the information <laughs> in? <laughs> uh, can you step us through that? Well, you know, I'm not, you know, uh, so so much engaged in those kinds of, you know, uh, technologies. What I and probably the answer will be very different for different age groups. Uh, I personally believe that there is a role for people coming together for learning, you know, to have a space in your life that is really dedicated to inquiry, to the future. It's not that you just work and learn little chunks and pieces when you need them, but I think there is a there is a reason why people, you know, dedicate time and energy in a space to, to work together in this kind of social process of learning. Uh, but I also think, you know, uh, when it comes to uh, probably we will see the, you know, integration of learning and work much earlier in the lives of people where you can try out things, you know, make a real difference in something, experiment on your own and uh, have much greater flexibility and which, by the way, raises huge challenges for teachers. The more flexibility you'll have in your education systems, the harder it will be for teachers to sort of pull all of this together for governments to create equitable learning opportunities. I think that's really the, the big challenge. I, but I, I think uh, I can see technology to become the big enabler. You know, the problems that we have today with inequality in education is in part a resource issue, but it's also in part an outgrowth of this very industrial way of walking. We teach everybody in the same way in the hope that, you know, they will come out the same way. We do not, un students with special needs, you know, they are not getting the attention and the time and the dedication they need simply because there's no one looking how they learn differently. And I think this kind of more personal experience of learning, I think is where you're gonna see uh, the big changes coming from. And I think it's a, you know, what we have done in school is uh, we had, you know, in the past classes of 50 students, then we reduced them to 40 and 30 and now 20. But we've never changed that mentality that all the students that sit in front of us are the same. 
You know, I think that is the quantum change that we need to achieve to understand this is an N of one. You know, you need to understand and then you need to create the learning environment through, you know, technology to, to recognize how that students learn. And uh, rather than reducing class size, you know, do more about truly personalizing learning experiences. So would you say you are hopeful for the future of education? And if so, why? Well, you know, I think you see some education systems that have made enormous strides uh, uh, towards a better future. Uh, what makes me hopeful that it's not just a question of resources. You know, if it would all be about money, I would be very pessimistic because money will always be short, uh, but it's not. I actually think it's more about, you know, uh, better policy, better practice. Uh, it's more about people. And uh, yeah, I am hopeful. I think uh, we have seen a lot of positive development. Uh, unfortunately, not in too many places. You know, I think uh, in a way we have become very complacent in, in our current institutional structure. So, uh, but, you know, it can be done. Whether it will be done, it's very hard to predict. No? I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your wisdom. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this has been great. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.